0: This is Pulse ninety five. You're listening to the Life Beats podcast. Life Beats, Life Beats with Sally Musa, only on Pulse ninety
1: five. Ninety five. al hello, Allah, and welcome back to the second hour of Life Beats with me, Sally Musa. You're about to meet the multi award winning fashion designer who was one of the first to spearhead the modest fashion movement, tapping into a market. That is worth $450 billion today globally. Rabia Zargapur talks style, innovation, determination, and why she's so passionate about helping up-and-coming designers to realise their dreams. All of that and more is next right here on Life Beats on Pulse 95.
0: This is Pulse 95. You're listening to the Life Beats podcast. Life Beats, Life Beats with Sally Musa only on Pulse 95. 95.
1: Hailed as the first lady of modest fashion, Emirati fashion designer, Rabia Zargapur is a multi-award winning entrepreneur and designer who recognized the gap in the market for beautiful modest clothing in the early 2000s and went on to become one of the pioneers of the modest fashion movement. She didn't stop there. Her passion for her craft inspired her to become a style innovator and one of the first to focus on ethical and sustainable fashion, as well as mentoring up-and-coming designers. It is such an honor and a privilege to welcome into the studio Rabia Z. Rabia Zagrapoor, Welcome.
2: So much.
1: So great to have you with us. Wonderful Uh, to be here. Thank you, Sally. You've been incredibly busy. You've been traveling so much. Uh, You've had a lot to do recently. We're going to get to that in just a moment. Uh, uh, So many different collaborations, so many different projects that you've had. Uh, But, Rabia, of course, you know, modest fashion is something that we talk about so much now. However, It wasn't always like that. So talk to us about, you know, your own personal uh, style and design journey. Uh, You know, as somebody uh, who was into fashion but also a business and, and entrepreneur, as well. Where did all of that start for you? Oh my gosh. Um, First of all,
2: Assalamu alaikum Sharjah. Wonderful to be here. (laughs) Thank you, Sally, for having me. Um, A very quick shout out to all the dads today being Father's Day. I'd like to say Happy Father's Day to my dad, my husband, and all the dads out there Um, in my life certainly. Uh, my husband has uh, played a huge part and he's definitely um, one of our you know, heroes in the family life so I just wanted to start out saying hi to him.
1: Yes, just um, met him in the green room, amazing. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, so my journey, gosh, um, feels like it was forever ago. Um, I did start early, um, obviously, before the industry was even an industry, before the fashion was even called Modest Fashion. Um, And it started uh, as a very personal journey, to be honest. It was um, my transition from, you know, being a um, little fashionista from New York. I went to fashion school there. I worked at Valentino and I interned at a fashion magazine. And I had that life and then I had a personal kind of a spiritual transition and awakening, I call it. And alhamdulillah, I found, I, as if it was like I re-found uh, my identity, the true identity that I felt was missing or I hadn't identified. You know, it took a while and I was pretty young, but it was a, a, a void in my life and I found that through spiritual Islam. And I had moved to California from New York then. And um, I just felt that, you know, it was time. And though I grew up here, you know how it is. You do take Islam for granted. You do take your life here for granted. But in, in the US, it's a different story. And alhamdulillah, as I had that, you know, my heart opened up to uh, towards virtual Islam and I started learning more about it. I, I met uh, wonderful people and I was part of the community there if you know the Sheikh Hamza Yusuf and of that course. wonderful Bay Area community and they were uh, all part
1: of that spiritual reawakening that absolutely. was happening in the, in the early 90s. Yes, if you remember yeah, exactly.
2: Absolutely. So I was very blessed to be part of that community and then unfortunately um, I mean so I took up the hijab alhamdulillah and then uh, unfortunately months into it the tragic 9/11 ha- uh, events happened. And certainly uh, my parents were pretty paranoid and they called me from here saying, you know, remove your hijab. Now's not the time. Why would you have to take it up now? You know, and and literally around me, people were removing their hijabs, you know, from relatives to communities. And it was a, if you remember how it was. So um, for me, there was two shocks. Uh, one was, of course, um, from being a fashionista, <laughs> you know, and uh, transitioning into uh conservative modest fashion. I was pretty depressed that I couldn't here's my superficial side, right? So I was like, what, there are no shops, no stores that I could shop at anymore? Cuz there was nothing in, in 2000, 2001, couldn't find, you know, shirts that were long, long sleeve in this is California I'm talking about, right? Even New York. And so
1: you have that, right? So that was that side of me. You say it's your superficial side, but actually, (laughs) and this is something that I've heard you say as well, you know, fashion is how we express ourselves. Correct. So actually, it's it's something that's incredibly profound. And I don't think that we give that enough credit, you know. And Mm. at that time, you know, when we were all finding, you know, our spiritual identity, how we dress and how we express ourselves in the world, very that true. wasn't there, was it? It wasn't there. Yeah. It wasn't
2: there, exactly. And I did hide behind uh, the abaya for some time. <laughs> I was wearing abaya in California the first few months. And of course, then that got interrupted um, because the hate crimes were so rampant. You couldn't right. just step out in an abaya in California. So, um, so, two things, like I said, there was this side of me, and then there's the other side of safety and security. And And so I decided um, that I wasn't going to remove my hijab. That certainly wasn't an option. So what do I do? I said, you know what? I'm a creative person. I can certainly do something. Um, And I felt responsible. I should do something at least to help myself first. And then, you know, just my sisters and friends around me. And that's how it started, to be honest. So mom was here and she had, uh, fortunately, her tailoring unit and it was a really decent unit like she had you know over 20 uh, staff and and tailors so I started to uh, utilize that and I started the first thing I ever designed those days was this um, ready-made turbans even though I don't, I hardly wear turbans but need of the hour then was to be able to step out
1: and not look so Muslim, do you right. know what I mean, Absolutely. right, with the hijab, so. You were responding to what was going on at the time, so, exactly. you know, two things were going on. Muslim women wanted to remain covered, yes. but not to be such obvious targets at the time, which, exactly. you know, th- similar things were going on in Sydney, in Australia, mm. where I was, and yeah. you could really feel that, so, yeah. you know, that's, that's amazing that you were thinking like that and yeah. thinking, you know, this is really at the top of the agenda at the moment.
2: Yeah, exactly. Mm. And and that's it, you know, started with that and then just basic long tunics and workwear, uh, work shirts, just three, four different like basic kind of items and breathable, colorful hijabs as well. And subhanAllah, what I realize is just by that, you know, small change in, in dressing, um, Outside, whilst all this craziness was going on and there was a lot of hate crime and, you know, people um, really, unfortunately, looking down at our women and women in hijab, what started to happen with this kind of uh, taking time to really put something good together, uh, you know, look more presentable, wear a more colorful hijab and, you know, style it in a very kind of modern way, Uh, What started to happen is people would stop and ask me questions about, hey, where are you from? What is this thing called you're wearing? It's really interesting. And so what I realized is that, huh, just doing that, actually, the fashion that I'm creating is is, um, I'm able to dialogue and open a dialogue with people about it. And it's not as threatening, right? So it's more inviting. And that fashion really became that um, conversation and that, you know, it was a great way for me to break the stereotypes and talk about Islam, talk about hijab, talk about how, you know, I'm an empowered woman, I'm an independent and successful woman. This is my choice. And I actually love fashion. I have a background in fashion.
1: So stuff like that. It was and a way of building bridges. Absolutely. That was so, so vital and so needed at that time.
2: At that time. Exactly.
1: Yeah. And that's it. That's that's how I started. Then <laughs> we're going to get into your uh, journey a little bit more in uh, just a moment as an entrepreneur and a fashion designer designer as well, because, you know, it, it it's a lot more difficult than it sounds. Of course. You know, creating <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, modest fashion. Ah, yes. yes. Uh, the fit. You mm-hmm. were one of those who innovated the fit, and, and we want to come back and talk about that in uh, just a moment. Uh, but I, I kind of want to touch on one of the things, because you're facing kind of uh you know obstacles from two sides. Yeah. So uh you know from the US from people around you that th- there were you know all of the the things going on with 9/11 at that time early 2000s modest fashion wasn't a thing yet. No. So when you're putting <laughs> women in hijab mm-hmm. on a runway mm-hmm. you've got a whole other lot of, yeah. of kind of you know th- thoughts and and that was a new thing that yes. was a new thing and you faced backlash we have to be of honest course, about that
2: of course yes absolutely
1: why was that what happened well first of all it was
2: it wasn't done before right mm. so it was new and anything new can be scary change can be scary um and second of all um you know Fast forward, obviously, today, when we see all the influencers and, and we see so many uh, you know, fashion personalities and celebrities and others uh, in our industry, uh, it's the norm, right? Mm. But back in the days, uh, clearly, it wasn't. Not only did we not have social media, um, but um, we were doing something that didn't exist in mainstream fashion. It didn't exist in Muslim fashion or Islamic fashion, as they called it. Um, it was new. So, uh, yes, for me, I felt the need to really kind of be at your face, Muslim on the runway. And I did that on purpose. It was really to send that message across to show people like I would, you know, majority of the shows I've done are mainstream shows and alhamdulillah, they would invite me and it was always an invitation and I would go. And so the... You know, models are all obviously non-Muslims and they're from the mainstream industry and uh, it, it was it would be very interesting to see how, you know, some were excited and others were like, what is this thing and whatever. But the point is that they were non-Muslim mainstream models and I would, you know, do the hijab in a way where not even a string of hair showing, no neck showing, <laughs> nothing. And I, like I said, I did that on purpose to send my message across because, you know, I styled them very stylishly. I dress them powerfully, colorfully, and I wanted people to know that, you know, this is this is an identity of Muslim women in a lot of places around the world, like in so many different demographics. This is what Muslim women represent. We are, you know, empowered, we're stylish, we love fashion, but we don't like to compromise on our faith and we do know how to balance both. So it was a, a stereotype I wanted to break in so many ways, um, and alhamdulillah it, it worked. But yes, the backlash, of course, from mainstream was that, you know, how can you, fashion is about showing skin, what do you mean, you know, not showing skin, right? And then for Muslims, of course, it was, well, this is too attractive and, you know, you're making it too beautiful. and. So yeah, I had to I had to juggle between both until, you know,
1: until you carved out a whole new space. Exactly. which was the beginning of the modest fashion movement. We're going to come back and talk yes. about that in just a moment. Rabia Z is here on Life Beats on Pulse 95.
0: This is Pulse 95. You're listening to the Life Beats podcast. Life Beats. Life Beats. With Sally Musa. Only on Pulse 95. 95
1: such a great conversation with the one and only Rabia Z. She is here with us in the studio. We are talking all things fashion, representation, the modest fashion movement, because quite frankly, she's the first lady of uh, modest fashion, as uh, many call her. And that's not coming from me. That's coming from the likes of the BBC, CNN, Bloomberg, you name it. Everybody knows uh, the impact that you have had, Rabia. But thank you, you know what? It's... Uh, as somebody who studied fashion, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I get, I understand how difficult it is. Not everybody understands uh, the fact that you can't just put any fabric, uh, you know, on the head of a woman and call it a hijab and that's it. Yes. There is so much to mm-hmm. this whole modest fashion look. And you had a lot of obstacles yes. when you were trying to talk to uh, factories, uh, you know, patent cutters, everybody to make them understand exactly what you wanted. Tell us a bit more about that.
2: <laughs> yeah, it seems um, seems kind of ancient now, but um, the fact is back in the day, it's actually, no, I shouldn't say ancient because honestly up until I would say even, you know, four or five years ago, uh, maybe even now uh, there are challenges in fit that I hear um, a lot of the customers talk about or people, followers talk about, uh, businesses talk to me about, Uh, the brands that they carry and how they do have that fit problem. So, yes, for modest fashion, obviously, we are a different fit and it's a new fit. It's a uh, unique fit. Um, yes, today you might say it's similar to the oversized um, fit, which is, you know, it's been trending in mainstream now more recently. However, back in the days, and like I said, even more recently, factories don't understand that. And they work with, you know, what um, the um, standard fit is uh, for global brands and even local brands. I mean, it's okay, it's a matter of, You know, let's work with the woman's body and the proportions and uh, it has to fit a, you know, standard UK, US, whatever size. And so they don't understand that, no, for us, it will always be a bit of extra fabric, it will always be looser, it would always require, you know, um, the fabric to move away from the body and not show the entire shape. And like I, you know, I mentioned earlier to you, uh, we once hired someone who had 30 years experience in pattern making. And when I told him that, okay, here's this, you know, basic look and uh, forget about the more complex drapes that we do and the technical cuts that we do. Here it is. Let's, let's create a body base based on uh, this uh, design. Um, you know, just let's do a standard small, medium, large XL or, you know, The funniest thing when he finished it, I was in shock because (laughs) it was (laughs) so tight. It was like a fitted, small fitted, and he didn't get it. And his experience actually was in um, Asian countries. So, you know, where they do actually design. So, yeah, like the chalwar kameez and stuff is new. So... Mm. He couldn't understand. He's like, but what do you mean? But then, the, you know, the waist size is this. What do you mean it needs to be, you know, 10 centimeters more or, or you know, five, six inches more? I'm like, yeah, because it's a modest fit. So, you know, things like that, um, challenges like that, uh, working with factories, you know making them understand that, yes, of course, uh, it will be more fabric, yes, it will be looser and it's okay, it's normal for us, this is what works, you know. So, yeah, things like that, um, those were from, you know, some of
1: the challenges amongst many others. But to create that look as well, I mean, your inspirations range from Japanese fashion design to Donna Karen. talk to me about that.
2: I love Japanese aesthetic as you can see. It's just my my you know daily uh, my personal style as well as one I take a lot of inspiration from. And I think that that loose comfort uh, aesthetic that the Japanese represent uh, and the clean cut and tailoring um, is what I absolutely love and adore. And it was. Not only a personal uh, choice and aesthetic, but also what I, over time, developed for the brand. Um, I love Donna Karen. Uh, it's such a shame that she no longer does Donna Karen. The label. It's pretty sad, uh, but she, uh, to me, was iconic in what she did with um, with jersey. And you know, I took inspiration from that. What you know, how she put this comfortable, stretchy, breathable jersey into Every day, you know, tank tops and leggings and things that everyone today lives on, right? Um, that For, you know, the non-modest I'm talking about, but yes, even us at home. But um, what I learned from that was, huh, you know, how do you take something that, you know, it's a basic fabric, really. It's not that I invented the fabric or she invented the fabric, but it's what we did with it. So I wanted to create a hijab that was as light and easily worn as a t-shirt
1: exactly that
2: comfort of wearing a t-shirt is what that I want that ease yeah. that comfort that breathability you know um, I wanted to have that feeling on the head and so that's what I did too so I said you know let's let's try this and at first it was hard because you know getting the right GSM the weight getting the right size, getting the right luster. Um, You know, how much cotton, you know, bit of lycra actually helps it. So it it took a while to develop. But when I did, alhamdulillah, I mean, yeah, you know, one should be upset that it's the most copied thing in the world. But I actually take pride in it because it's like a movement again that I started just for the comfort and the ease and breathability um, that I wanted women to experience all over the world. And alhamdulillah, it it got... Picked up, and it's like the most popular one of the most popular hijabs in the world. Which in the Gulf they refer to it as Kuwaiti because Kuwait really picked it up and you know it's been booming. That's so interesting. Uh, I didn't realize
1: it was a Kuwaiti thing. Wow, okay. But that's the thing, you started this whole jersey hijab uh, thing, and as somebody who wore the hijab for years, really, jersey is uh the fabric. Yes. You know, if you want to wear a hijab, if you want to feel it's comfortable. Effortless, and cool, no
2: pins required. No
1: pills. You you just wrap it just and off you go and it stays in place. It doesn't place. slide off. It's amazing. Right. <laughs> but this is how, you know, but part of what you started. We're gonna come back in just a moment. Talk about the modest fashion movement and where it took off. Yeah. Your passion now as well for mentoring designers uh, and your work in Sharjah There is so much more to come. Keep it here on Pulse 95.
0: This is Pulse 95. You're listening to the Life Beats Podcast. Life Beats. Life Beats. With Sally Musa. Only on Pulse 95. 95. We're
1: continuing the conversation with the one and only Rabia Z. She is here and uh, sharing her story. Rabia, uh, as uh, we just talked about, you know, you were somebody who created the jersey hijab, which got copied everywhere. And it's important for people to realize, you know, you started the modest fashion movement before it became a modest fashion movement and you know so uh, talk to us about that how you know from the time uh you know years ago when you started in uh this direction and how all of that grew as well to become you know something that we talk about as mainstream now it is so everybody wants it you know even those who are non-muslim they want to dress more modestly they see what's being created uh and these are designs that they're after now as well
2: exactly Alhamdulillah, it's um, it's come a long way, and um, yes, all this talk makes me feel old, but uh, not at all. It's been uh,
1: you were a baby back while. then.
2: <laughs> um, no, Alhamdulillah, really, really, uh, really proud of it because you know uh, we worked so hard to push modest fashion into mainstream, mm-hmm. so so hard, and had to you know bend rules and and do. Things that were completely out of the ordinary and out of the box, and you know, took a lot of heat from both sides, as we discussed earlier. And you know,
1: Alhamdulillah, all this has paid off today. When did you feel it? Kind of, this is kind of going to the next level. Well, when, um, so if I can say this
2: on record, so ages ago and early on, um, I had um, almost tied in with two major collaborations and you know i'll name one of them now um h m uh it didn't go through it it was they were very interested and the people in in the middle uh pushed it all the way and we worked very hard and i went to sweden and um you know it was looking great It made it to the headquarters, and unfortunately, some time later, came back saying, you know, no, uh, we have too many projects, we're not interested right now. Um, But we knew, I knew, I knew that it had to do with the hijab aspect of my brand, promoting modesty and hijab, right? So I knew it was too soon, and I'm talking back in 2010. It was the last time we had that conversation, though it was started earlier. Then what happened is five years later, we see a hijabi model in H&M, yes. right? In the H&M campaign. Maria Idrisi. That's right. Yeah. A dear friend of mine, Maria. So look at that, right? So it took five years. And when that happened, and when I saw Maria in the in the um, campaign, I said, yes, okay, I think we're, we're there now. You know, it's, it's starting now. And... After that, of course, you know, H&M, you know, two years ago, last year, had an entire modest line called limited. Mm. So that, of course, stamps it even further. Right. So I think the H&M example is a good uh, way for me to kind of gauge. Right. So from the conversation, how I started with them to where they went with an ad and then having their own modest line. So, uh, yeah, that's a good indication, I would say. It took a while. It certainly took a while to catch on. And it started with the Ramadan edits, right? So everyone's doing a Ramadan edit from Carolina Herrera, Tommy Hilfiger, DKNY started it. And, um, and now, you know, from Ramadan edits, it started to stay on the shelf longer um, because people are demanding for it. People, you know, there's, there's, um, there's interest, there's demand. And brands are catching up to that now. So,
1: you know, alhamdulillah. And yeah. it's it's huge demand because, yeah. you know, as we were saying, uh, fashion is actually, um, it's not a su- superficial thing. We need fashion to to express ourselves. So, sure. you know, from your perspective, uh, Rabia, what does fashion mean to you and the importance of it in self-expression? See,
2: fashion, what people don't realize that it's actually business-wise, it's one of the fifth largest Uh, money earners in the world. Um, So it's a huge industry, a huge, um, um, okay, industry is one way, right? And then there's the expression side, right? So fashion will always be in fashion, as they say. Um, It's never gonna go away, but there are levels and there are industries uh, within fashion that might stay and might die and there are ones that will sustain so for me fashion has always been kind of the mood uh, of the hour as well as self-expression the most common one that i've always used and everyone says it is definitely the most the best way of expressing yourself mm. and your personality and you know it's a mirror to show people a bit of a, bu- you know a little bit without talking to say mm, this is who I am this is how I am uh, without talking a lot right so your your clothes speak the way you style it speaks even the way you wear your hijab can speak right so there's that expression but for me I take fashion very seriously and I tell my The reason I started the mentorship more seriously as a program, I've been mentoring young labels and designers for many, many years, okay, so I felt like it's time to take it to the next level and I got very, very passionate to build the next generation of fashion designers, modest fashion designers, sustainable fashion designers, Um, and I work with a lot of labels from all over the world and the mentees are, you would be surprised to hear their background. Some are professionals like lawyers and doctors others are stay-at-home moms with five children and you know in between we have we actually have established designers and names that need that you know edge or that professionalism, that DNA that hasn't been able they haven't been able to build over time uh, because if you know uh, you know fashion Sally so um, what's missing in in the industry, if you pay close attention, is that brands with that strong handwriting, that voice, uh, which mainstream has a lot, right? Like you would go. For example, shop at Donna Karen because of that aesthetic. Or in fast fashion, people go to Zara for a reason, right? The there's, a defined, always, absolutely. there's a defined you style, You know what you will find brand. when you go in there.
1: Yes, and the feel, like you said, the DNA. Exactly. It, it, you know, It's that relationship that you have. Correct. Yes, they are designs, but they come together to tell a certain story. Absolutely. And it's, this is what you help the designers to do.
2: Exactly, because I felt like in our industry, we're missing that we didn't have enough professional brands or professional designers doing uh, creating modest fashion lines and it's to me a more you know experienced eye. i can tell and i know i was feeling conscious that ma- uh, mainstream fashion if they were to really look more deeply in they would also call it out and be like okay you know there's something not right here there's no authenticity no originality so what, what's gonna happen and then, what will happen and what started to happen and it's already happening, is mainstream is t- starting to take over, right? And mainstream does fashion better anyway. So if we don't step it up, then over time, it's just gonna be, you know, H&M limited collection will be the best thing rather than, you know, uh, within our industry, the names that we have for them to be the, the big name in modest fashion. They will just take over and it's a shame all we need is a little bit of nurturing, a bit of attention, a bit of training, polishing up the brand, polishing up the aesthetic, and we can do much better. And that's what I tell my mentees, and that's what I see in the more professional ones, the ones sorry, the ones that are more established. But ones I'm most proud of, I'm proud of all of them, of course, but ones I'm most proud of are the stay-at-home moms with five kids. And I'm so proud to say that I have a mentee who... You know, raises five children at home, and mashallah, did her first runway show and has an entire collection produced and is selling on her e-commerce as we speak, sitting at home. That's incredible. So alhamdulillah, I, I feel really proud that I'm able to do that. So I share all my resources, all the networks that I have, all my contacts that I've made over the last 15 to 18 years. I freely share that with my mentees. Why
1: are you so passionate them. about it, it. Where does
2: that I come from? It. I love it. I love seeing, you know, a label in the making, a brand in the making, one that is professional, one that's making a difference, um, one that I would love to shop from myself. Yeah, yeah. And it, it excites me so much. I'm really, really proud and really excited about um, the progress I'm seeing with the mentees, alhamdulillah. It's so phenomenal. Yeah, and I really do believe in, uh, that we rise by lifting others. And that's the motto that I've adapted for our academy, our Modest Fashion Academy. I do the mentorship program. I do it one-on-one myself for now. Um, but we are partnering. We have partnered with Mainstream. And we will be bringing Mainstream experts to give specialized courses um, and masterclasses within the industry, so it's incredible. Yeah, it's fashion. Amazing.
1: Fashion is cutthroat as yes. an industry. It can feel incredibly intimidating yeah. to want to go into that space. But with designers like you, who are so experienced, who have risen to the top, for you to offer that hand to others is phenomenal, unbelievable. Uh, we're going to come back in just a moment to talk about some of the work that you've been doing in Sharjah, which is yeah. amazing. Uh, but to talk also ethical fashion, this is uh, something also. That you were one of the pioneers of as well years ago. And again, you know, this is something that we're talking about very much today. More to come with Rabiazi.
0: This is Pulse 95. You're listening to the Life Beats Podcast. Life beats life beats with Sally Musa only on Pulse 95. 95.
1: We're talking all things uh, fashion with Fashion Maven, Modest Fashion Maven. Rabia Zishi is with us in the studio but uh, something we were discussing earlier Rabia is uh, the impact of social media Uh, on uh, people how they feel about it it's it's getting a lot of celebrities down but you know it's interesting talking about social media and the impact of it on the space of fashion Mm. and even modest fashion that has really changed the game and I'm really interested to get your thoughts on that
2: well I'm uh, one of those that are pretty controversial when it comes to my opinion on social media um Okay, let's let's see how I can put it. So for me, um, <clears throat> we started when we started. We started pre-social media, right? So I'm definitely more used to um, regular media, print media, uh, TV journalism, and all of that, right? Uh, social media changed the game completely, of course. And for us, we missed out on a lot because we, I took a break when my twins were born. Um, and this is in 2012, they were premature, three months premature, so I had to kind of stop everything I was doing and pay attention to my my newborn twins. Um, And I decided to actually take two years off then, which went on to three years, but um, that time when I took the break is when Instagram just had started to just kind of sneak up on us. And today, obviously, it's the most... Uh, most used, probably the most popular uh, outlet of social media. Um, it's a great platform, fantastic platform. So uh, we missed out um, on that. And even when we had the Facebook and other following, I felt I always had to force myself to post and it just didn't come naturally. And to be honest, you know, we're known f- for an authentic voice, for who we are, right? So even when we'd have a PR team come in or marketing would come in and say, look, you need to do more. People want to see more of you. And it's just, it wasn't me and I couldn't force it. So whenever I felt comfortable, I would do a post. Most of the time I didn't feel comfortable. The most active I actually am is on Snapchat. And that's cause it's actually a very small group of family and close friends, mm. not even my, my Yeah my private Facebook page I don't post much I should post more as a brand yes absolutely I would rather have you know the right teams in place doing those posts for the brand I do believe it's an amazing marketing platform Um, and all brands have to have that presence you should have that authentic voice you should have uh, not only presence you should be active me again this is personal me story right so my point of view is that I would in our industry, I've seen the girls, I've seen uh, the influencers become influencers. I see. I saw them pretty much. They were born and how they have risen to where they are, how they've risen. So um, I've seen that whole journey. I mentor a lot of them too. Um, what I feel like sometimes, what I challenge them with is that, look guys, what if Instagram just one fine day stopped? If Instagram didn't exist, would you exist? Would people know you? Would people remember you? Are you really doing something or sharing something um, of value? You know, does it have a significance? Like, are you making any aspect of your viewers or your followers' lives um, better, are easier? Are they going to remember you? The main yeah. thing is just think about that, right? Yeah, yeah. I know it seems impossible, but think about it. If it... Like back in the days, it was my space and whatnot.
1: It's but not it's there true. anymore. It's a vital part of brand building, but your brand has to be a lot bigger than just one Social platform. Media. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah.
2: there are those that hide behind it. You see what was happening, what frustrated me. And then in my mentorship, I made sure that I push uh, my mentees, even though, again, it's not my passion per se for me to do the post. But I do encourage others when it comes to that brand voice. There has to be that presence. But. Um, for me, uh, so w- where my frustration lied is where, because of the following, because there were those that had so many followers that they just didn't feel the need to really um, step it up and do something, you know, better. Uh, in terms of, th- th- I'm talking about the creative sector mm-hmm. now. Um, so my frustration with them was that, like, stop hiding behind your followers. You know, if those followers didn't exist. Is this what you would be doing if you are creating this look which a lot of the times unfortunately in the industry as you know and you've noticed it's just a copy paste kind of uh, industry right unfortunately everything is just copied from here and there. You put three, four pieces out there in your social media and you say limited collection sold out in two days, three days. Wow. Yeah, because you've only made those three pieces <laughs> and mom and sister and best friend bought it, you know. I mean, I love the entrepreneurial side, but what I'm saying is I'm not saying this to put them down. I, My frustration is, guys, come on, you can do better. Yeah, you can do better. Get out of that. Get out of your comfort zone, get out of your comfort zone to create something that's You know, long lasting that makes a difference, that something you'd want to be remembered for. You know, it's not sustainable. If you're going to keep copying, putting this couple of stuff out there, it's not sustainable.
1: Speaking of sustainability, uh, very quickly, just your ideas about ethical fashion as well. You're one of the first who was kind of going, I'm not putting out, uh, you know, the polyesters and and the synthetic fabrics because of the impact that they have on the environment. It's huge. It is huge. I can't even express uh, the
2: seriousness of where we're at today. Um, synthetics, I'm not completely against if it's recycled. We do recycle synthetics or if it's um, you know forest friendly like viscose. Um, so, sustainability is definitely the future of fashion and mm-hmm. whoever is not starting to educate themselves towards it is going to miss out on this huge, not only as an industry, I'm saying those that are more in, interested in the industry. Environmental wise, I can't, I don't even want to begin. I don't even want to begin. Like these polyester hijabs that I'm so against, um, I, we've we've never had them in the brand, we've never created them, we never wear them. I don't wear them and because I don't wear them, I do not offer them to my my followers either. Cause You know, when you throw that, because that will get thrown away at some point, even if you're handing them down to others.
1: At the end of the day, it will end
2: up in a landfill,
1: and it will not biodegrade. No, this is something to, to no. keep in mind. Uh, I, I wish we had more time to talk to you about this. You know, it's something you're so passionate about. Uh, just very quickly in the mm-hmm. last minute, mm-hmm. um, you know, you've done uh, some work here in Sharjah as well with Earthy, which yes. we love so much. Yes, Azami.
2: Yes, Azami. I love the Azami program. It's a wonderful program for young designers and established designers. Um, we were part of Aziami with my sister last year um, to develop the actually our accessories line, Rabi Ezi Accessories. One segment of the accessories was that we wanted to create um, Afghan embroideries um, in, a, in a new way, in a new context, um, a, into prints um, for hijabs. And Earthy, you know, being Crafts Council, were the per- they were just the perfect uh, people to partner up with, and we got accepted together. My sister's not experienced, so we got accepted together at Aziami, and we got you know the training mentorship. Um, for her, it was definitely um, she loved the whole learning. For me, obviously, it was a repeat of everything I knew, but the networks and. You know, the, oh my God, the people behind it, uh, the teachers, you know, That's we're amazing. very good friends. Uh, it's, I highly recommend this program to any Fantastic. young and established designers that would like to take their brand to the next level. Uh, and uh, very quickly, I do want to mention my my history with Sharjah. Uh, and my love uh, started with um, my um, dear friend today, uh, Manal. And Manal is... Um, yes, you know know. By, uh, yes, the Director
1: General of Sharjah yes. Museums, because yes. she
2: actually, she exhibited your collection. She did, way back in 2008. Amazing. She was the first
1: person to acknowledge our work and put it out in a museum. Rabia, I feel like we have so much more that we need to talk to you about. Unfortunately, we've got to leave it there. We are out of time. Thank you so much no for joining Thank us. Thank you. It's
2: been such a pleasure. Thank, Thank you for having me,
1: Sally. That's it for us Thank yesterday. you, Charger. <laughs> we'll be back with you again tomorrow from 10 a.m. right here on Life Beats.
0: This is Pulse 95. Tune in live every weekday from 10 a.m.